Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm also a pastor here, <clears throat> excuse me, at Redeemer. We are continuing this morning in a series that we're going to be doing this fall from the prophet Isaiah. So you see the graphic there behind me or on your screen at home. Uh, we come this morning to chapter 40, the second half of the chapter. We looked at the first half last week. Uh, these are really uh, soaring passages, beautiful words uh, that the Lord offers us here. So we're going to read this morning from Isaiah 40. And then go back, actually, to Isaiah chapter 30 and pick up a place where there's a similar theme that Isaiah is spelling out for the people there. And so if you want to read along with me, you can in your Bibles, uh, or it's printed for you if you're here in the room in the worship folder or on the screen behind me or at your screen, on your screen at home. So let's read together uh, from God's Word. Uh, and these, again, just listen to these words, beautiful words. Beginning in verse 25 of chapter 40, to whom will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Famous words there. And then in Isaiah 30, For thus says the Lord, thus said the Lord, God, the Holy One of Israel. In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away. And you said, We, shall, we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore... The Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show you mercy. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Anybody feel tired? I got some hands raised from the back of the room there. Yeah. I recently heard somebody describe what life feels like right now for a lot of people. He said, we thought we were running a marathon. And just as we stumbled into the finish line, somebody handed us a Speedo and a bike helmet. We realized we're actually in a triathlon. That's what the last 18 months has felt like. Uh, I've probably had a dozen conversations. I'm not, I, I tried to really capture. I know pastors, preachers are prone to exaggeration. I don't think this is, this is such. I probably had at least a dozen conversations just this past week where somebody said to me, I'm just exhausted. The second half of Isaiah chapter 40 is addressed to people, and you'll see these words come up again and again. People who are faint and weary. That group of words occurs seven times, and together they refer to somebody who has come to the end of their strength and they can't go on. They're out of gas. There's nothing left. Uh, some, some friends here in the church 
for the last couple of years, uh, we've we have uh, we realized we're not getting any younger, and so but the young guys go with us. We've decided uh, every year to go for a couple of days on uh, the Appalachian Trail. We've done it for a few years now, and I've heard some people say, "How do you get invited on this trip?" And here's the answer to that question: You invite yourself. Okay, if you dare to come, come. Uh, but so, so again, in a couple of weeks, we're going to do it again. But last year we went, and uh, over the course of three days. We hiked about 30 miles, and so the first day we hiked 11 miles, most of it uphill, of course, with like 50-pound packs on our backs. You get up the second day, and uh, well, I did anyway. I, I think was I? The, I think I was the oldest guy on the trip. Uh, and uh, I'll be honest, second day you get up, you can barely move. Everything hurts. And on this particular trek we were on, if you're familiar with this part of North Carolina, we had to hike up over Roan Mountain. And uh, which, which to really get, we knew where the views were. We had to get up over. And Roan Mountain is five miles straight up. You go up to over about 6,000 feet. And then uh, actually after we got over top of that, we went another seven or eight miles after that. Around 5.30 in the afternoon, we've been hiking all day long. We came to this shelter. It was about a mile and a half from where we had, um, where we had planned to camp for the night. And of course, we, we all needed a break. Uh, but I was the last one because I was trailing behind. And uh, I came into the place there, took my pack off, and I mean, I just collapsed. That, I mean, you can chuck, I mean, you can make fun of me. If you, I mean, I, when I say collapsed, I mean, I mean, I laid down, and about 30 seconds into laying down, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get up. <laughs> it was an exhaustion like I've never experienced. I mean, everything hurt. I had used every ounce of strength, and I knew there was another mile or so to go. There was nothing, there was nothing left. Nothing left. That is faint and weary. That experience. Now faint is used as an adjective here, but it's also a verb, isn't it? When someone faints, it means to lose consciousness because not enough oxygen is getting to your brain. But what we see here is not just physical, this is not just a physical reality. This is, what, what these words are describing for us here is the sum of the physical, emotional, psychological, even spiritual exhaustion that can at times become so overwhelming that you, you really stop functioning. You can't go any further. You can't do any more. Anybody there? One of the mercies of preaching is that um, the best sermons are the ones that are being preached to the preacher as he's preaching it. And God is gracious to often let the one preaching live the realities that he's preaching? Well, guess what? Guess what my week was like this week? I'm exhausted. Really, I am. Uh, and that's why I'm here. Because when we're the most exhausted, we need to be here. When we can't sing the songs, because it just hurts too much, we need to be among the people who can sing them for us. And so I'm glad to be here with you this morning. And you may not be feeling this as acutely as I am, so just know this is... This is, this is the kind of like, I can't get out of bed, I don't even want to put my clothes on, kind of deep, you know, just exhaustion and even depression. I'm not saying that, but don't worry about me, it's going to be okay, we're fine. God is faithful, but you may be feeling that. And if you aren't, give it a minute. Because the reality is, is we can't escape this. There's no escaping this description that Isaiah is giving us here, and here's why. You're not in control. And things will always be breaking and falling apart. And you will, at some point, have to face devastating criticism because you won't always do it right. And you'll have, at times, crushing loneliness because everybody does. I mean, you have to sleep at the end of every day because your physical strength is not sufficient for 
two or three days in a row. And newsflash, your body will eventually begin to fail you or your mind or both. And then ultimately you'll face death. So this is a reality. Faint and weary is a description of the human condition. And so if it describes the way you feel, I just want you to know you're not alone and you're not doing something wrong. And here's the thing. I I hope you can grab onto this. Actually, the times when you feel this most acutely, those are the moments. Those moments, those moments are opportunities to live with more clarity and honesty, honesty than we can usually muster. They're moments of breakthrough spiritually. That's what this text teaches us. Because it goes right after, it addresses that reality of being faint and being weary with an invitation and a confrontation and a disputation. All three of those things here in Isaiah chapter 40 and then pulling back into Isaiah 30. We see to all who are faint and weary an invitation and then a confrontation and then a disputation. So let's look at each of those in turn as we go through these texts. So first, for the faint and the weary, if that's you, no matter how acutely you might feel that this morning, there is an invitation from both Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 30. And it's just here. Let's read those last verses together that are so famous and so beautiful. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, and walk and not faint. And then the verse in chapter 30, verse 15, where the Lord says, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. God is inviting us into waiting. He says, it is possible to run and not grow weary. I've never had that experience, but he says it's possible to work hard and not burn out. There's a rhythm of life that includes lots of hard work and discipline, but that doesn't leave you exhausted. And it's actually the mark of a person who has learned how to wait for the Lord. And so let's define what we mean by waiting. Now note, if you have a different translation, it might say those who hope in the Lord here, that's the NIV or those who trust in the Lord. And so that word grouping all means the same thing, to wait, to hope, to trust in the Lord. And theologically, it means this. God's work is what matters most, and he does not do things on our schedule. And so you have to wait. We cannot save ourselves. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but it comes how and where and when he determines, not us, and so we wait. And so waiting is flexing your believing muscles because with God, even when nothing seems to be happening, things are happening. Even when nothing is happening, something's happening. So that's what it means theologically. Practically, waiting is what we find in that wonderful verse in chapter 30, verse 15. It's a returning to rest. Now, I'm just going to use those words. There's four words there to describe waiting. Returning means, of course, that you've been doing something other than resting. You've been plotting. You've been strategizing, controlling, worrying, overthinking, regretting. You've been doing all of these things, and you need to put all of that down because all of that's all about you. You need to turn away from relying upon yourself and forsake every hope and come back to the Lord. That's what he's saying. Come back to me. Come back to my heart. Stop carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders for one minute and sit down in God's presence and take a break from running the world. Returning to rest. But also it's quietness that comes from trust. 
And so waiting is not a passive thing. It's full of activity, but absent of frenzy and restless anxiety. Can I say that again? It's not passive. It's full of activity, but empty, but absent of frenzy and restless anxiety. So Eugene Peterson, he wrote this. He said, God is the beginning, the center, and the end of the world's life, of of existence itself. But we're often unaware of God's action except dimly and peripherally. Because, let me footnote, because we're thinking about and worrying about and regretting and being anxious about all the things that we've done or not done or should do or can't do or whatever it might be. But here's what Eugene Peterson says. He says, we're often unaware of God's action except dimly and peripherally. And here's here's how we respond to that. He says, we need to quit, listen to this, we need to quit what we're doing and be still. (laughs) And when we're still, The dust raised by our furious activity settles. The noise generated by our building operations goes quiet, and we become aware of the real world, God's world. And it's so much larger, it's so much more full of energy and possibility than our ego-fueled actions. It's so much clearer and saner than the plans that we have projected. This is what the psalmist means when he says, be still and know that I am God. Get quiet to know God. Get still and let the dust settle. That you, All the dust you've been kicking up and all of your doing, let it settle and then you'll be able to see. And you begin to see what God's doing and it'll be so much more vast, so much more amazing, so much more comprehensive than what you could otherwise imagine. Now, I'm the kind of person who has a hard time resting until all the work is done. Anybody else? Okay, big problem. What's the problem? The work is never done. (laughs) You got it. You're tracking, Patrick. Thank you. Waiting doesn't ignore the work that needs to be done. I want to say that. Waiting doesn't ignore the work that needs to be done. It It just recognizes whose work it is. And it doesn't necessarily mean less work. It just means you still run, but you learn to run in such a way that you can run without getting worn out. Look at Isaiah 30 or 40. He says, even youth is full of fainting and weariness. Isn't that an interesting thought? I mean, even youth is full of fainting and weariness because I'm, in the, I'm at the age now, and I have a baby face. I'm older than I look. I'm at the age where I wake up already hurting. Isn't that the worst? Like, I wake up at the beginning of the day and hurt before I even get out of bed. I wake up and anticipate the first movement out of bed because I know it's going to hurt. But it's still new enough to me that I'm still surprised by all the aches and the pains. I feel like something's wrong because it's that way. I'm not yet resigned to it, but I remember, I remember faintly what it was like to be 25 and to be able to go and go and go and not get tired and not be sore the next day. I mean, we have friends, Ashley and I do, our age, who have little kids, and I pray for them because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I do not have the energy to do the parenting thing, so God bless you. You're on my, seriously, you're on my prayer list. But see, here's the thing. If you learn to wait on the Lord, it's better than being young. That's what he says. Because even youth, even in youth, we grow weary. Even youths grow weary eventually. But if you learn to wait on God, you can grow wings like an eagle and begin to soar, soar through life. Now think about that image, the eagle soaring. The eagle, as you look at it over Lake Howard, the eagle is not straining. He is effortlessly riding the air currents. Can you imagine? 
What's the image mean? It means that the Lord is blowing a wind. There's a wind that's blowing across your life. And you can just catch the wind and soar if you can learn how to wait. Now, this is an invitation into believing. Be still and know me, God says. Well, what do we know of him from this passage? And that's the most important question of all. And there's a lot, quite honestly. But it starts here that God is not faint. He does not grow weary. You might come to the end of your strength, but there is no end to his strength. So when you come to the end of your strength, it's actually good news. It's a very good place to be because then his strength can take over, and that's way better. There's no such thing as being weak. Excuse me. There's no such thing as being too weak in the spiritual life, but you can be too strong. Weakness is strength. Because it is God's power, not mine at work. And so the call to waiting is an invitation to believe that God is mighty and he's merciful. He's able to rescue. He never tires of rescuing. He never wearies of loving you. His steadfast love never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. He's never stretched too thin. He never gets stressed. He's never overwhelmed with the work that's before him to do. There's no end to his strength. There's no end to his mercy. Isn't that great news? And it says even here, verse 29, that he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. And so the invitation is this. You're stronger when you're weak than when you're stronger. You're stronger when you're weak than when you're strong. Because when you're weak, God's strength comes. And so return. Rest. Be still. Trust. But second, not only an invitation, but for the faint and the weary, there's also a confrontation because the problem is the weariness that we all feel can turn you sour on the Lord and it happened to these people here and if it happened to them, it can happen to us. So we look in verse 27 and verse 27 really is the the center of the entire chapter 40 where the Lord addresses the people and he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. They began to deeply fear that God had forsaken them. They're looking around and they can't find him. He's nowhere to be found. How can God let this happen to me, they say. If he cared about me at all, he would do something about this thing that's got me so worked up. But the verb tenses here are in the present tense to suggest the prevailing mood. They've settled into this unbelieving, questioning, and doubting of the Lord. And so weariness is just the fruit, but unbelief is the root. They no longer trust God to care for them. Their lives have fallen apart, and they've become exhausted by the pain of it, and it's caused them to begin to make certain assumptions about God. They feel wronged by God, in fact. Look at the words he said. They say, my right is disregarded. He's, they're saying, God, you know, we've fallen through the cracks. This isn't fair. How could, how, it's not right that you're letting this happen to me when everybody else's life is going so well. They're making an accusation. They're saying, I put my trust in the Lord and this is what I get? He's blessing other people and not me? John Knox, uh, the Scottish Presbyterian, he said, by what means Satan first drew mankind from obedience to God, the scripture doth witness. To wit, it's this, by pouring into their hearts that poison that God did not love them. The first occasion, the first sin, excuse me, was occasioned by unbelief and every other sin after. And if this is what you think of God, then it makes sense that you would default to working and not waiting. Thinking, you know, I'm going to provide for my family. And if I'm going to do it, it will be because 
I put in the work and climb the ladder of success and earn the paycheck. If my kids are going to succeed, it will be because I'm a good parent. Which, of course, means if it doesn't go well with them, it's because I've failed. And so the motto becomes, in striving and effort, I shall be saved. (laughs) Worry and self-reliance will be my strength, right? That's Isaiah 30 turned on its head, right? In in striving and effort, I shall be saved. Worry and self-reliance will be my strength. And it's the opposite of waiting. Working is the opposite of waiting. And when I use the word work... I want to be careful. I mean the work underneath the work because work is good and there is, there, there, but there can be work that's underneath that work that's good that's deadly. I mean the work of parenting is good, but the work underneath that work is what can kill you. And those are Tim Keller's words. He says this work underneath the work is the need to prove and to save ourselves and to take control of our lives because there's no one else. You can't trust God. Somebody I love recently posted this quote on their Instagram story, it broke my heart. It said this, nobody is coming to save you, to choose you, to validate you. This has always been your job. You have to love yourself so fearly that you have no other choice but to be strong for yourself, to fight for yourself, to be yourself, to build yourself. That's cultural, that's cultural dogma. I know it is. But all I can think and all I can feel when I read that is despair. That's hopelessness. Nobody's coming to save you, to choose you, to validate you. That's been your job. You have to love yourself. You have to build yourself. You have to fight for yourself because there's no one else. No one else is coming to the rescue. It's up to you. See, it all goes back to what you think of God. And Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that the root of the very first sin and every subsequent sin is actually legalism. I'm reading a book, it's, it's in your resources there called The Whole Christ, and he says the root of our rebellion against God is a deep-seated suspicion of God that darkens our understanding, dulls our senses, and destroys our affections so that instead of trusting him, we become suspicious of him because God has become, these are his words, what happens is, is this gets twisted and God becomes he whose favor has to be earned. And that's the root And so we exhaust ourselves in our work because underneath, we exhaust ourselves in our parenting because we can't trust his heart. So underneath is the work of trying to prove ourselves worthy of being loved and accepted. To to borrow from the Apostle Paul, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. That is the essence of sin. In every sin, in every instance of rebellion and disobedience to God, there is an exchanging of the truth for a lie. If that's true, then the remedy is what? The remedy is to exchange the lie for the truth. And that's exactly what Isaiah 40 All of Isaiah 40 through 66 actually is designed to do. And so let's finish there by seeing, lastly, for the faint and the weary, there is a disputation. Isaiah 40 is a disputation. It's an extended argument against the claim in verse 27. What's the, remember, look at verse 27 again. What's it say? Why do you say, O Jacob, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right right is disregarded by my God? The whole rest of the chapter is an argument against that false claim. It's meant to correct our wrong thoughts about God. There are 14 questions in 15 verses here. It is a cross-examination. The Lord is doing, through the prophet, against his people, saying, verse 28, Have you not known? Where is this coming from, he says. This accusation against me, have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He says, you should know better. God has made himself known, but the reality is our hearts are slow to believe. And so you've got to take yourself in hand. You've got to do what Isaiah's doing here. You've got to remind yourself of the truth and rehearse it over and over again. You've got to argue with your unbelief, craft arguments against it. And the rest of Isaiah 40 and the verses in chapter 30 is the record of the case. It's the record of the case that you can use to make your arguments against your own unbelief. And there are really two things. He wants us to see God's might and his mercy. He wants us to see God as creator and also as redeemer. But in verse 28, it begins there when he says, and I've already read it, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Now that is a summary of all of chapter 40, verses 12 through 24. We didn't read it for the sake of time, but it, and because it's summarized right there in verse 28, God is the creator. And in his creation, we see his immensity. We see his might. Think about this. Uh, just this, I, I, so many, I came across in so many instances this week that I thought the Lord must want this said in the service. But if you think just about the earth, the earth is this massive, we can hardly even imagine the, the scale and the size of the planet that we live on. If you were to take the height of Mount Everest and the depth of the Mariana Trench, uh, the distance between the height and the depth will be like a postage stamp on a beach ball. That's the, that's the size of the earth that we live in. But then if you figure that the earth itself is just a fraction of the size of other planets in our solar system, like it's, the, it's a fraction of the size of Saturn, the earth is smaller than Jupiter's red spot. But here's the thing, Jupiter is one one-thousandth the size of the sun. If earth were a pea, Jupiter would be a grapefruit. The sun would be like a beach ball. But the sun is really just a small star in our galaxy. It's one one-thousandth the size of Arcturus, which is one one-thousandth the size of Antares. And this Antares is, is the, the 13th brightest star. If you look at it, it's, it's actually red. Uh, it was named Antares because it was like the enemy of Ares, the Greek god of war. We don't even know how large the star is. If, it, if that star was in the place of our sun, it would reach far enough out to be somewhere between the orbit of Mars and the orbit of Jupiter around our sun. But we're not even out of the Milky Way yet. Which is just a drop in the galactic ocean out of one out of two trillion galaxies with more stars than the grains of sand on all the beaches and all the deserts in all the world. Do you get a sense? That's why when, when people doubt God, what, what does the Bible say? Go outside at night and look up. He's the creator. And as creator, he is sovereign over all of creation. That's verses 12 through 14 of chapter 40. He measured out the oceans. He sets the limits for the universe. He made every star. He calls them all by name. He did this by the greatness of his might and because he's strong in power, not one is missing. Nothing is beyond his control and authority. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the stars by name? Can you control the tides from coming in and going out? Do you really think you can control your life then? He is sovereign not only over creation, but over the nations. This is verses 15 through 17. The Taliban is a drop 
from a bucket. All the empires and the superpowers of history, the Babylonians and the Romans and even America, they are all dust on the scales. All the nations, there is nothing before him, less than nothing in emptiness, verse 17. I mean, if you pick up the phone call, uh, if you pick up the phone to call Senator Rubio, do you think he'll take your call? Probably, just, just FYI, probably not. Because who are you? He is sovereign over creation and over the nations and over our lives. He orchestrates all the big stuff and all the little stuff that makes up our lives. He overthrows dictators, yet not a single sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's in charge of the details. He is the king enthroned in heaven. And you, we're told in verse 22, are a grasshopper in comparison. Let me ask a question. Do you really think your life is better off in your hands than his? Would you dare to compare whatever power or wisdom or authority you have to his power and wisdom and authority. He is the creator, the sovereign over all of life. And your sins, your mistakes, whatever evil might be coming against you, whatever enemies you might have, they are no match for his might. But it gets better than that. Can you believe that? And this is why I included Isaiah 30, verses 15 through 18, because there it talks about not only God's might, but also his mercy, that he is not just creator, he is also a redeemer. And it's that truth in particular that touches on the problem we've diagnosed. And we need to round to a close here, because in verse 18 in Isaiah 30, you'll see there it says, the Lord waits to be gracious to you and exalts himself to show you mercy. Isn't that lovely? Let's read it again. Can you, look, can you get your eyes on it? Can you find it, maybe in your Bible or on the sheet? There it is on the screen. Just look at that verse again with me for a minute. The Lord waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show you mercy. What happens in your heart when you read that? My heart jumps. And it jumps because I spent the week studying it a little bit and know what it means. And what a privilege to be able to talk to you about it for just a minute. Because the key to becoming a person who can be waiting on the Lord and not working is to see that God is waiting. Do you see that, that verse? That God is waiting? That God is waiting on our waiting? <laughs> that he's waiting to be gracious? That he's waiting for your strength to fail so that you'll cry out to him and he can come with all of his power to save you? That he is waiting for your righteousness to fail you and for you to blow it big time so that he can, so you'll cry out to him for the righteousness you need and he can give it to you as a gift? I mean, grace refers to the unearned, unmerited love and favor of God. You don't work for grace. It's the opposite. Grace means that God does all the work, that he is the source of all the good that makes up your life, not you. That his love for you comes from within himself and not from you. And that's why it says that he's waiting. He has to wait for you to stop trying to earn his love. That's the lie. God is not he whose favor has to be earned. God is revealing himself here to be he who waits to be gracious. The only thing keeping you from his grace is you. The only barrier to his mercy and his might being unleashed in your life is your insistence that you don't need his help. He exalts himself, it says there, to show mercy to you. The word there means he rises up. This is literally what it means. One commentator says he stands on tiptoes. There is an eagerness in him 
the God we serve, the God revealed to us here to be merciful. That's what he wants you to know, that he waits like the father in Jesus' parable of the prodigal child. But at your first movement towards him, that first little step, he comes rushing towards you with grace and mercy. That is what God is really like. Do you believe it? Our hard hearts have trouble believing, but it's true, and we know it's true. We know it's true because of the fullest revelation of his heart toward us in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, God did not wait for us to turn towards him. He came all the way to us. And he did all the work himself, living a life of obedience for us so that he could give us righteousness, rightness with God as a gift, dying upon the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven of all of our sins and healed and reconciled to God, rising on the third day from the grave so that all of our stories might end in resurrection too, and it's all grace. And so Jesus says, come to me. If you're weary and you're tired and you're exhausted and you're depressed, come to me and I will give you rest because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And his yoke is easy because he promises to do all the heavy lifting. His grace makes it possible to do your work, whether that's at work or as a parent or as a pastor, to do that work without the work underneath because that work, that work of proving yourself, that work of trying to make yourself right with God, that work has already been done. It is finished. Jesus has. I'm so glad that you, that you uh, corrected yourself, Jonathan, when you read that text a little while ago. Jesus has for all time. For all time accomplished everything necessary for you to be confident that God loves you, that he's for you, that he's actively weaving the details of your life together into something beautiful. Because when he was finished, that Hebrews passage tells us, when he's finished, what did he do? Do you remember? What did he do? He sat down. He sat down because there was no more work to be done. And he invites you by faith to sit down with him and get a front row seat to watch as the Lord slowly but surely brings all the good that he is planned for you to be. Are you tired? Do you feel like you've got nothing left? If you're not there, like I said, give it a minute. You probably will be eventually. It's the human condition. And I hope you remember all of this. But if you are there, well, can I say something to you? If that's where you are, if you came this morning like that, let me say, good. Now you're ready for God. If you're at the end of your strength, good news. Now you get the privilege of seeing what only God can do. That is the message of this text. And so I would say to you, encourage you to say again to your heart along with the hymnist, return then my soul to Jesus thy rest. By faith on him roll and lean on his breast. He will not deceive thee, his faithfulness prove. He never can leave thee till God is not love. Amen. Pray with me if you would. So Father, we do marvel at both your might and also your mercy, as both are revealed to us here in this text. You are the creator, the one who made us. And we were made out of love, which means you're also the one who came to save us in Jesus, to redeem us and to rescue us. You are a rescuer who stands on his tiptoes, waiting, <laughs> waiting for the call to come like every parent does when they send a child away from their home or when they when they watch and see uh, something going on and they just wait they wait for the child's face to turn towards them so they can come running to rescue you are just like that we are 
evil people. And so even the way we love one another or love our children is just a dim reflection of your great love for us. And so would you help us in this moment as we come to the end of our service to believe? We would say as we pray, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. We believe, but in small fraction because we still go and we're anxious and we're worried and we run around and we, we do, 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 and our life is full of frantic activity and stress. And at the end of the day, it's because we just don't believe that you are able to overcome our weaknesses. We don't believe that your love is undefeated. And you would remind us yet again this morning to say, in returning and rest, in quietness and trust is your strength. And so even as you call us to that, we take a moment just to sit before you. Would you quiet our hearts in this moment of quiet? Prophet Zephaniah says, you quiet us with your love. And then renew in us, in this moment, a deep and abiding trust. That we would go from this place and learn, learn to wait. And so even now we sing and ask that you do that. Holy Spirit, come. As we sing this song, may we sing it, some of us, because it's where we are, and may some of, some of us will sing it because it's where we want to be. And in either case, help us now as we respond in the best way we know, and that is to lift our voices to you because you are worthy. No matter what's going on, you are worthy. So call us out of our exhaustion into full attention to your goodness and your greatness, to your mercy and your might. As we sing, we pray in Jesus' name. That song is a reflection on Psalm 130, which says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. For if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who would stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem his people from their sins. That is the promise of this benediction, that there is with the Lord steadfast love for whatever might be facing you as you leave the room this morning. Put your faith in the Lord. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, turn to him. His strength can be your strength. His righteousness can be your righteousness. But if you do know him, return to him again. And, and receive these words of benediction. And may they be a place of resting for you as you go now to the work that he's called you to. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. He sends us now in his peace. Go in peace.